Welcome to the Game Plan Podcast with Judah Newby and Brian Perkins, breaking down all things Seahawks. And welcome into the Game Plan Podcast on this Wednesday, the 16th of May. He's Brian Perkins. I'm Judah Newby. Going to hit on a few things in today's episode, including the national perception around the Seattle Seahawks right now. Smack dab in the middle of the offseason. Uh, what are some takeaways that the national media has on the Seattle draft and what they lost in free agency? Plus, a Seahawk coaching legend passes away. And we'll also get into uh, some notes from phase two of the voluntary workout program that started this week. Perkins, let's start here with some of the national negativity that's been going around with the Seahawks, especially coming out of the draft. We had Mel Kuyper give them a C-plus draft grade, which was tied for the lowest of any team in the league. And on NFL Live recently, there was some conversation around teams that have had the worst off-seasons in the league so far. And the Seahawks' name was brought up multiple times, including this clip from Dan Graziano. Who had the worst offseason? Yeah, why so right. negative, right? I, I, it wasn't my know. idea. Worst offseason. My, my first thought was the Seahawks. I, I think, you know, losing guys from that corners, cornerstone pieces from that defense, Richard Sherman, you know, Michael Bennett traded, Cliff Averill, uh, possibly Cam Chancellor, yeah. still possibly Earl Thomas, who knows, yeah. before the season starts. Uh, I think the Seahawks' decline might have actually begun last year. I don't know anybody who saw that coming at that point, except maybe Darren Woodson. But I think uh, <laughs> that decline, if it started last year, continues this year, and that's the reason why. Now, we understand in context, this is just for them building a segment of their live talk show on TV. But that being said, just the idea of Seattle having the worst offseason of any of the 32 teams, that caught my eye. Does it catch your eye in a similar way? Like, it was that bad? I, re- I remember the last time the Seahawks had a uh, really bad offseason, and they won a Super Bowl a year later. 2012, I feel like this this conversation, I know that it's a little different this time around because of you know Seattle losing a couple guys and aging stars, but yeah. I feel like how good your offseason is is dictated based on how well you played the previous season. I know that sounds weird, but like Seattle didn't go out and overpay for an Indomitian Sioux. They didn't go out and give an atrocious amount of money to a guy that they're going to be tied to long term. I feel like those are always the teams that quote unquote win the offseason are the ones that sign, you know, like Des Bryant to a to a four year you know, $80 million deal well, or something yeah. like that. It's teams that sign the most high-profile stars that people are attracted to I in terms of what they added. But you're right. Every move Seattle made this offseason was frugal. You could argue that if frugality is your barometer yeah. for best and worst offseasons, maybe they, they had the best one because they wouldn't overpay for anybody. Well, what they did, and, you know, I, I don't know if, if what Graziano, how how close he's followed it, but it it feels like what Seattle has done, whether you agree with it or not, they went back to the drawing board. They said, this is this is our blueprint to win, and this is how we are going to do it, and we are going to do things our way. And they have committed to that 100% based on all the moves they've made this offseason. Whether you agree with it or not is another discussion, but I you have to commend them for that, for committing to it, not for waffling, not for you know wavering one way or another or hanging on to a guy too long. You know, like a Michael Bennett who looks like he's on the decline or, you know, I I didn't agree with getting rid of Richard Sherman, but I understand why they did it. I think Seattle's offseason has been been mundane. Mm -hmm. Is that a word I can use? It hasn't been bad necessarily. It hasn't been great, obviously. I don't think this team has put themselves back into contending position. 
Um, it's I, been a zero-sum game? It feels a little bit like, oh, yeah, cool, they did that. Oh, man, they got rid of Richard Sherman. Like, that's a big deal. Oh, they traded Michael Bennett. Okay. And then in the draft, you're like, oh, cool, they got some 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 good young names, and they got some questionable picks, and it feels just a little bit like oh, their offseason's been pretty bland. Well, that's I think, how I feel. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the perception around um, the Seahawks, the perception that they lost so much this offseason – is partly um, dependent on the fact that guys like Michael Bennett are still seen as top-flight superstars. Yeah. Guys like Richard Sherman were still seen as top-flight superstars. Cam Chancellor even, Cliff Averill into that mix as well, and Sheldon Richardson, who, you know, they consider a loss, though he was, you know, a free agent. So, in order to push back on that, what are the reasons why those perceptions are wrong? What are the reasons why... Even though those guys have been superstars in the past, they aren't any longer. Bennett, age. I mean, 32, almost 33 years old, was slowed down by injuries. Yeah, he, he sack- gives, it, gives it his all, but the production was missing last year. Richard Sherman, a freaking Achilles injury. I mean, those are really tough historically to come back from 100%. Uh, Sheldon Richardson, lack of production in terms of in terms of raw stats cliff averill i think the the argument there is more health related and he's not going to even play for another team and you know cam chancellor is the same way so my my overall point is you know these aren't guys that are leaving seattle because seattle, seattle is undervaluing them they they're leaving because one of age and two it just didn't make sense financially to bring them back you know those are justifiable reasons for guys to leave the the perception should be oh seattle lost out on these guys because they didn't do enough to bring them back. you know. But I feel like when you're talking worst off seasons, that's what you point to. And, and got teams like the Bills and the Dolphins are also brought up. It's like when you're putting the Seahawks in the same category as the Bills and the Dolphins, I think you best you know pause for a moment. I, I agree. Michael Bennett couldn't tackle torn ACL Drew Stanton. I mean, let, I mean, that, I that think that's all the, you need to know. Yeah, that's one of the plays that stands out from last year. And, you know, hopefully he can get healthy and, and play better next season. But he was, I mean, he was a shell of himself, it felt like, at yeah. most, most of last season. Yeah. And they have lost a lot of guys. But Seattle has also put, I mean, <laughs> football is such a chess match. They have put the pieces in place, not for 2018, but really looking, in my opinion, to 2019-2020. You know, and they have not overspent. They have not gotten desperate. They have not made a desperation signing. They have reset their identity. They have done all of those things to set them up, set themselves up for success in the near future. So I don't see how that makes it a bad off season. If you expect a team to stay on top, you know, all the time, then I guess you go, okay, well, it's the New England Patriots and no one else because no other team has been able to sustain that amount of success for that long period of time. In fact, Seattle doing that from 2012 up until last season is pretty impressive in its own right, to be honest. ADSPN NFL insiders uh, also voted on the worst off seasons in the league. Three of the eight said the Seahawks. Casey Joyner pointed out that they did so little to upgrade the offensive line, which was arguably the worst in the league last season. Does he have a point? That's a really tough question because Seattle feels strongly like they have their guys, right? I, I and I almost feel like I like their guys. You know, you, they did upgrade their offensive line. They fired Tom Cable. I, I think that's a fair argument. Like They're, they they are changing the offensive scheme and they fired Tom Cable and Daryl Bevel. That's the offensive line upgrade. That, yeah, I think that factors in absolutely. You have a Pro Bowl caliber left tackle. 
most important position. You have a steady center. And you have some young pieces around that. What was Seattle going to do to improve that drastically? I mean, I don't know what they could have possibly done. Is there a move they could have made this offseason? And they, they brought o- in Fluker, who is a good run blocker, at the very least when he's healthy. Yeah. I mean, yes. I think their biggest upgrade came in the coaching staff. Yeah. And yeah. that's okay. Um, Dan Graziano pointed out, Pete Carroll is not to be underestimated as a puzzle solver, but does he have enough pieces? Does Pete Carroll have enough pieces to solve this puzzle in 2018 in terms of getting them to the playoffs? I mean, we see surprise teams make the playoffs all the time. You know, we see schedules that we think are so tough be yeah. easy, and schedules that we think are so easy produce nine and seven football teams that miss the playoffs. You know, we don't really know anything for certain. Why can't this Seattle team, given its pieces right now, be a surprise? If I was a betting man, I would say they don't make the playoffs. Right. I, I would agree, but I don't think it's out of the question either. No, because you have you know. your franchise quarterback. I right. think in the end, you have you are set at the most important position, right? And Pete Carroll is so good at developing young secondary talent that the fact that they have to reload there, I still think there's going to be growing pains. I don't think this is an immediate turnaround, a 2018 situation, but I don't think Seattle's going to win four games next year. I think they'll they'll be in the hunt until the final few weeks. They'll probably win seven, eight, nine games somewhere in there. Matt Bowen points out the quarterback talent in the NFC West. Jimmy Garoppolo, an up-and-coming Jared Goff, and not even just the quarterbacks, but the offensive coordinators of those teams, Shanahan and um, Sean McVay. Throw in Sam Bradford, who went healthy, is still talented, and uh, Josh Rosen in the fold down in Arizona. Add to that the pieces that Seattle has lost on defense, particularly in the secondary, reason enough to be concerned. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Rams did a lot of made a lot of moves this offseason to ensure they weren't a flash in the pan, right? You yeah. saw, I mean, they were very active. They weren't settling with, okay, well, you know, we we made it to the playoffs and we'll do better next year. They know that they're now playing a first place schedule. They are now uh they are now the team with the spotlight on them instead of the Seahawks. You know, last year for the Rams, I it was still hard to really believe in them. It felt like for most of the year and then they obviously waxed the Hawks and uh, late in the season and you kind of knew they were for real at that point. But I think a lot of people overlooked them last year even when they were winning all of those games. Right, yeah. And that's not going to be the case this year. You're going to get every team's best effort because you are the team to beat in that division. It reminds me of Seattle's approach to winning the Super Bowl and then trading for Jimmy Graham. Yeah. You know, like right away, you know, just trying to like re-up, go after it. Yeah, well, and you you look at, I mean, you just you look at the rest of the division, and it's not a slam dunk for Seattle to finish second, just because I think the the Niners are a really big wild card, more so, no pun intended, with the playoff run, uh, more so than the other two teams, because Jimmy G is still unproven. As much as everyone wants to anoint him as a first ballot Hall of Famer, he's you know not played a lot of football yet. They have made a lot of moves, but they they feel like Seattle where. They look. They have the makings of a good team, but but they're still missing, you know, multiple pieces. So is the negative perception fair at this point for the Seahawks? I understand where it's coming from, and I think I understand that it's there's a reason why it's national perceptions because a lot of the national pundits don't have the time or the resources, or they're just not around the team, and as uh, frankly, as much as we are. So they have what they have, which is the high-profile moves that have been made, and those high-profile moves would suggest that it's been a tough offseason for Seattle. But I think when you're able to discuss it and flesh it out and get to the other side of their offseason and understand where their identity is going and 
look outside of just personnel and talk about coaching staff as you brought up in the past, I'm actually kind of I'm I'm fine. I'm exactly fine with where the Seahawks have gone so far. Not too thrilled, not too excited. You know, there wasn't that one big high-profile signing that you feel like it's going to put them over the top. But at the same time, that doesn't apply to your team every offseason. That would be a mistake to overpay for a high-profile guy. So I'd rather win games in fall than win the offseason anyway. Any coach would tell you that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not... I, I think that the negative perception is is fair to a certain extent where if people don't think that this team is going to be very good next year and they're not going to make the playoffs, I think that's fair because I would agree with that. I don't think that they're going to be a very good team either. They're going to be an average team in the NFL next season if I was a betting man. But that being said, I agree with you that the criticism, the overarching criticism, I don't know if it's, if it's fair because it was inevitable that this was going to happen, right? And it wasn't going to be pretty. All the personalities on this team, all aging at essentially the same time, and then you chalk up three of your core defensive players suffer potential career-threatening injuries in Cliff Averill, Cam Chancellor, and Richard Sherman. All in one season. What are you supposed to do to right the ship immediately when that happens to you? Right. I mean, you lost three guys that were perennial pro bowlers or all pros. Three guys that were huge and very crucial in your Super Bowl runs. It was going to happen. One other thing I wanted to point out that I found was uh, Shiel Kapadia, who used to cover the Seahawks for ESPN.com, now covers the Eagles for The Athletic. But he had a story with an Eagles scout talking about a study that they did on late-round draft picks. Um, And they included this paragraph, quote, We found that players in rounds 5, 6, and 7 – that turn out to be quality starters came from three categories. One, they came from a small school. Two, they had been injured their last year in school, so they were undervalued. Or three, they were undersized, but for some reason overcame it. If you're in the sixth round and you're picking some guy from Ohio State that has great height, weight, and speed, your chances that everybody missed him and he turns out to be a starter are minuscule. I read that and I was like, that's that's Jamarcus Jones, Jamarco Jones. Now he's a fifth rounder, from Ohio State with pretty good measurables and was a three-year starter, was fully healthy, came from a big school. Quote, your chances that everybody missed him and he turns out to be a starter are minuscule, unquote. That caught my eye. We retweeted it on uh, the Game Plan podcast, and I tried to quote tweet it and say, hey, if I'm Pete Carroll, I give this to Jamarco Jones right now. Tell him to use it as, as motivation. Where else? I mean... How else do you try to get a three-year letter winner at Ohio State to get motivated? I mean, he did slip <laughs> to the fifth round, and I know he's not the most, you know, he, he doesn't fit the profile of, like, a, a great offensive lineman. He doesn't project as a great offensive lineman. It's interesting here, though, that the Eagles did an intentional scouting uh, exercise on rounds five through seven and basically described Jamarco Jones as a guy that they would never take. Is there an expectation that he has to come in and play immediately? No. That he has to be a rotational guy? No, they have enough depth. Now you could argue they have that enough depth. bodies. They have enough bodies. They have enough bodies. I mean, they, bodies and depth are well. But are look, fans coming back this year. Yeah. So he's going to be a guy that can. He's, he's either going to start or is going to be you know your number one backup at multiple positions. You have uh, Fluker who, who's coming in as well this year. Posix back. I mean, I, there's more depth than you realize. It's right. just a lot of average players at but, least right now. Well, how and, we look at them. And the argument is you're taking a guy in the fifth round that has 
minuscule impact, minuscule chance to make a difference where there are other guys in that area that you probably could have taken. Yeah, so but you know, I, th- I think that could that, make an impact. I think that if you're if you're talking with Solari about the type of guy that he's looking for and he thinks that he can mold him into the player he wants to be and maybe he can be one of those swing offensive linemen, then you've got something there. I don't know if the expectation of a of a guy like him is anything more than that anyway. So yeah. And you you bring up a good point. I think there is something to be said for drafting a quote unquote Solari guy to show Solari that you can that you can trust me, Pete Carroll. You can trust me, John Schneider. That we have your that we're trying to find guys that fit within your scheme too. They did it enough with building that trust as well. (laughs) They certainly did it to the nth degree with Tom Cable, and not wrong every time, but uh, multiple times enough times to, to, (laughs) to make a damaging impact. But maybe it's a maybe you know drafting a guy in the fifth round that they wouldn't normally draft. You could argue, you know, there was a little bit of a motivation to do that for the sake of their new offensive line coach to show them that we're committing to you. You know, we want to have your guys in here too, so we will invest draft capital in the fifth round for you. Um, moving on, uh, some sad news over the weekend that uh, longtime Seahawk coach, legendary Seahawk coach Chuck Knox, passed away, eighty-six years old after. A long battle with dementia. He coached Seattle for nine years from 1983 to 1991. He went 80-63 and 63 during that time, 3-4 and four in the postseason. His first season was 83, leading Seattle to its first playoff berth. They won wild card in divisional games. They upset the Miami Dolphins in Miami 27-20 in the most iconic win in the uh, early days of the Seahawks and got them all the way to the AFC Championship game where they lost to Marcus Allen and the LA Raiders. Knox went into the Ring of Honor in 2005. He's also considered regularly for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Had two coaching stints with the L.A. Rams and one with the Buffalo Bills as well. Uh, Chuck Knox, you know, we don't think often enough about the history of the Seattle Seahawks because his era predated both of our fandom, if not our lives. Um, And so, but it's cool when we, we look back at Chuck Knox and what he accomplished in Seattle and see that through the prism of how we currently see our fandom with the Seahawks and be like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, all the way back in the 80s, this was the Pete Carroll of the time. This was the guy that that fans looked to and would criticize or praise. And he was so endearing. He was known for his Noxisms. And Claire yeah. Farnsworth, <laughs> the longtime Seahawk beat writer, you know, wrote a piece about him on Seahawks.com. And even though Claire's retired as well, it was cool to see Claire write about him again and have memories of his Noxisms and his coaching style, his philosophy. And the fact that in his first year, he took the Seahawks to an AFC championship game, the only AFC championship game they ever went to as a franchise. But, you know, you 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 take that length, long run of success, 83 to 91, you know, regularly occurring in the playoffs. And then you kind of put that up against the struggles that the team went through in the 90s and early, early 2000s-ish before making their Super Bowl run in 2005. And you get, at the very least, a newfound appreciation of what Chuck Knox did in Seattle. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, think about this. They didn't make the playoffs again until 99, right, after he left. It's funny because when you think about, at least when I think about him, I almost think about him like I, I, I think that maybe some of the audience that was able to watch him, you know, I was born in 87, you were born in the early 90s, so neither of us really were able to appreciate him as a coach in real time. But I almost liken him to a Mike Holmgren in a sense, where a guy that you know has has a strong coaching pedigree is able to come in and pretty quickly. I mean, very much quicker than what Holmgren did, right? Uh, Holmgren eventually brought them to a Super Bowl, but he helped take this team and this franchise that was still relatively young, right? Um, 
you know, they were what in their seventh season at that point when he joined the team and he was able to take them to a, to heights that they had never seen before um, from an underdog perspective. And I feel like Holmgren uh, was able to do that as well, obviously in the early two thousands. So, you know, when you think about the pantheon of Seahawks coaches, you know, Chuck's Chuck Knox is obviously the first guy that comes to mind, at least for me, just because, you know, he was really the first guy to prove that this franchise could be successful. Yeah. Know? And that LA Raiders team that they played in 83 went on to win the Super Bowl 38 to 9 over the Washington Redskins. So, I mean, um, you know, going that far in his first season, it, I was trying to think of parallels with with Pete Carroll and you know, I know Pete by the time 2013 rolled around was in his fourth season, but Russ was in his second season. And, you know, when, when Seattle won that Super Bowl so early, that, that was kind of the thought. They had won it early. They had won it before the window was supposed to be fully open. The championship window was supposed to be fully open. And then there was that whole sense of potential and possibility and hope of a dynasty. And I just I wonder what the narrative was like when Seattle won at such a high level so early with Chuck Knox. Was there a similar hope, potential, promise, expectation of a dynasty? And, you know, in terms of, his coaching career, they ended up going through some disappointing playoff losses. I mean, they won a couple of division titles along the way, but also had some playoff exits without ever reaching the championship game again. Yeah, tweet at us at GamePlanPod if you uh, if you have memories of that, because I, I'm going to talk with my dad about that as well, who's been a Seahawks fan essentially since they came into being, you know, in the 70s. Um, because you're right, it is... You have to wonder if it was kind of that same, that similar mindset. There's always so much optimism, right, when your team exceeds expectations. Yeah. Um, unless they get swept in the playoffs by the Pelicans. And, ooh, shade, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's obviously very revered in, you know, in Seattle and in Seahawks history and lore, and he should be, rightfully so. You know, and to be fair, his best regular season with the Seahawks, they went 10 and 6 in 1986. And uh, actually, no, sorry. This is the second. They went 12 and 4. They were 12 and 4 in 1984 and lost in the divisional game after finishing second in the AFC West. Man, who do you finish second in your division to when you go 12 and (laughs) 4? That's crazy. Maybe the Raiders? Probably the Raiders. Yeah, the defending Super Bowl champions. Because they beat the Raiders that year. So in 1984, the Broncos went 13 and 3. The Seahawks went 12 and 4 and the Raiders went 11 and 5. The Dolphins went 14 and 2 and the Steelers went 9 went 9 and 7. Three teams from the AFC West made the playoffs that year. <laughs> How are there only five playoff teams though? Did only one team get a bye? Must have been back in the uh No. There was a wild card game between seeds four and five, and seeds one through three got buys. I guess that makes sense. So if you finish second or third in the conference, you automatically were playing one another in the divisional round. But you had to win a wild card game in order to play the number one seed. Well, we've got a lot of studying on the (laughs) early 80 NFL season to do. But 1986 as well, I mean, they went 10 and 6 in 1986 and missed the playoffs. Missed the playoffs, yep. You know, and then, so. of course, they make it the next year, right, winning nine games. Go yeah. figure. Yeah. They went to the playoffs multiple times as a nine-game winner. Three times. Three of his four yeah. playoff appearances. So, yeah. you know, gives you an appreciation of going 9-7 and seven last year and missing the playoffs. Well, three times at Knox, they <laughs> went 9-7 and seven and made the playoffs. And 
including going nine and seven, going all the way to the AFC Championship game. So, I mean, it's just it's for one, it gives you a greater appreciation of the history of the, your favorite team. That's always valuable. But when you talk about putting him, Chuck Knox, in the in the pantheon of Seahawks coaches, I think you got to start with Pete Carroll and then got, go to Mike Holmgren. But after that, I mean, it's Chuck Knox, pretty yep. firmly at number three, in my opinion. I yep. mean, both in tenure, success, and a legacy. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. So Chuck Knox passes away at the age of 86. All right, let's wrap it up here. But a couple of notes from phase two of voluntary workouts. Seattle has now signed five of their nine draft picks, most recently Jamarco Jones and Alex McGuff, the seventh rounder, um, signing him to a four-year deal. Um, thought is, McGuff going to push Austin Davis for the backup quarterback role. And speaking of backup quarterbacks, we know the Seahawks talked to Colin Kaepernick in this offseason as well. Reports came out that they did not continue those conversations because Kaepernick could not come out one way or the other firmly on whether or not he was going to stand or sit for the national an- or kneel for the national anthem. Pete Carroll, John Schneider were in a deposition for the by the lawyers of Colin Kaepernick last week in his collusion grievance with the league. Brian Perkins, did the Seahawks participate in the league's collusion? Because we always want to criticize the league for colluding against Colin Kaepernick, but is our own team guilty of this? It's so. I mean, we're not in those conversations, but my I guess, was there. My, okay, so you know, my yeah. guess would be yes. I mean, I think that this is. He's clearly been blackballed from the NFL. He's a good enough player to play and to probably start on like at least ten teams, in my opinion. There you and I disagree lot, on that, but well, there are a lot of bad quarterbacks. There are, and I'm still convinced that Houston might have been an okay team last year had they signed him. Yeah, but whatever. That's yeah. either here nor I there. Agree. I agree. You won four probably games. Haha. Better than TJ uh, Yates, man. Oh, good. I mean, come on. Seriously. Like, like, not even close. It's just a disservice to your fan base, and yeah. it's it annoys me, but whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that there's something to be said for that. That I, it's hard to say because do they are they part of collusion? So, if they ask Kaepernick, are you going to kneel or stand? And he says he hasn't, he's not sold one way or another on it, and they decide not to sign him. Does that then make them part of collusion? Or is it only if they talk to the rest of the owners and say, we're not going to sign him regardless because no one else is? Yeah. The the question of what is del- delusion, collusion, is its own conversation. Absolutely, but I think you got to you know wh- what? How did that conversation go? I think the question is believed to have been asked to Kaepernick, like, are you going to stand for the national anthem or are you going to kneel for the national anthem? And he was like, he couldn't give them a, a clear answer one way or the other. So I, I they, think- they probably asked him a closed-ended question, and he said, I can't supply an answer, as opposed to an open-ended question, what are you going to do for the anthem this year? And he didn't answer him. So that gave them enough uncertainty to basically not want to deal with the distraction of, of, of a backup quarterback doing that. On the surface, on a surface level, to me it seems obvious there's some sort of collusion going on because of what's happened with Eric Reed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know the safety market is, has cooled down significantly. Like, it's been kind of shocking how few safeties have been signed. But, I mean, Eric Reed is, was, you know, considered the top or one of the top free agents at his position. The fact that he hasn't been signed yet is pretty shocking to me. Yeah. And I do think it has something to do with it. He's been very, very vocal in this. Which is funny because he's never gotten the attention that Colin Kaepernick has to me. Like when you think of, you know, we're going to talk about this for years and people might laugh about that, but this is going to be something that is going to go down in sports history as a social issue that happened in 2016. Yep, absolutely. And the conversation, though, is going to primarily revolve around Colin Kaepernick. Eric Reed supported him. Eric Reed did it as well. But Colin Kaepernick was the was the instigator and he was the first to do this. And 
So I do think it's interesting because I don't think that teams would come would be under fire as much. It, there wouldn't be as much controversy, quote unquote, for signing Eric Reed. But we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, coming up, we're also going to lay out uh, a series of articles on the Game Plan Podcast uh, via 1029thegame.com talking about uh, the Seahawk, the notable Seahawks that have left in this offseason and defining their legacy, you know, their best plays, their biggest moments, and just overall what they meant to this franchise. And also trying to project what kind of success they're going to have with their new teams. It's just a other way to help us get closure with some of these guys that made such a big impact for the Seahawks during the best years of their franchise history. He's Brian Perkins. I'm Judah Newby. Follow us on Twitter at Game Plan Pod and check out our new Facebook page as well. Just uh, search the Game Plan Podcast into Facebook and give it a like. Check it out. We'll have posts up regularly there. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.